to believe that environment is a luxury of the rich and development is a need of the poor, right? But uh, it, that's not the case. In fact, it's the poor that have a more immediate reliance on their environments. They have a bigger vested interest in protecting it, and they don't. So it's just that we don't hear it. In the paper, forced displacement is short term, but the reality is that displacement or forced displacement is long term. Therefore, people have to be realistic and move beyond short term to a more long term solution. Welcome to this, our fourth episode of the UN Capital Development Fund podcast, Women and Girls on the Climate Change Frontline. If you remember, we left off our last episode just as the 28th Conference of the Parties, or COP28, was about to open in Dubai, a futuristic skyscraping city that rises from the deserts of the United Arab Emirates. Since then, yes, COP opened. And closed again. And while it might feel like that was all some time ago, it's worth a look back at COP as the theme for this week's podcast is policy. COP is, after all, where countries pledge action on climate change, promises that have to be actioned with policy and regulatory systems by national governments. So it's a good place to look more closely at what policy is, who's making it and who's shaping the decisions. Some people declared COP28 a success, not least with the financial commitments for a new loss and damage fund and the first ever mention of oil and gas in the agreed text. It won plaudits from Simon Steele, the Executive Secretary of the UNFCCC, which organises the annual COP. COP28 also needed to signal a hard stop to humanity's core climate problem. Fossil fuels and their planet-burning pollution. Whilst we didn't fully turn the page on the fossil fuel era in Dubai, this is clearly the beginning of the end. But others slammed COP28, declaring it an overstuffed climate change circus. And maybe they had a point too. Around 84,000 people descended on Dubai for this year's UN-organised climate negotiations, making it the biggest conference of the parties yet. And not by a small margin either. COP28 was over twice the size of the previous record-breaker, COP26 in Glasgow. This COP was huge. So what was it like to be part of this mammoth meeting? I spoke with a COP28 regular, Andrew Sharma, to get a sense of what COP28 was like and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, Sarah, you're right. I was there, just like I've been there for more or less every COP since 1997, since the Kyoto Protocol was started, right? So I've literally seen how the whole process has changed. Some for the better, some for the worse. 
this particular cock was, as you said, one of the biggest. Well, some people say there are probably as many as 100,000 people. To some extent, it felt like the Tower of Babel because literally we may have all been speaking English. We weren't, but even if they were, the conversations that you heard could have come from a different world altogether, right? Andrew painted a vivid picture of the multicultural, multilingual gathering in Dubai's vast and purpose-built exhibition space, perhaps the only place on the planet large enough to host that many people. Discussions took place in air-conditioned meeting rooms. Some had just a handful of chairs around a table, while other plenary and negotiation rooms were big enough to park an airplane. COP attendees walked miles or took golf buggies to travel between events within a conference space the size of some cities. While it's easy to poke fault at COP, not least the vast environmental footprint of holding such a large event and the number of international flights that brought all those attendees together, the new supercharged size of COP28 did have some notable positives, says Anju, as it created more space for more voices. Voices that previously went unheard. So it's now grown from being a space primarily for negotiators and a few NGOs. And and the time that I joined in 1997, it was mostly Northern NGOs. There were very few Southern NGOs, and that was clearly imbalanced. So the good thing that's happened since is that there's a lot more representation from developing countries, both from NGOs and from the media even, and from government, because there used to be a time you could look at delegation sizes and it was definitely not proportionate to the population they were representing. So some would have hundreds of delegates to do shifts and they'd have different people in the day and different night. And other delegations had literally two people. And they had to sit day and night. And it was almost negotiation by exhaustion that went on, right? So to that extent, it's really good that it's grown. But in other ways, I think that it's just becoming more and more difficult to justify. So I think we'd all agree that we need the UN process. I mean, it's the only place that we can hope that there's some fairness, that everybody is represented, everybody has a voice, right? But on the other hand, I think what's happening is that the more and more these processes grow, the more and more they get questioned, like at the end of this. Andrew has worked on climate and environmental issues for many years, and she's currently global lead on locally-led adaptation at the Global Centre on Adaptation. Like many long-term COP attendees, she's somewhat conflicted about this annual conference. Yes, COP needed to grow to allow more representation, but this most recent COP was so big that it was difficult to hear those different voices as everyone, each country, NGO or lobbying group, vied and jostled to be heard and for their message to cut through the many thousands of events and platforms. So it's not even as if we're hearing each other. We're in our own little bubbles increasingly, in our own little sectors, in our own little parts of civil society that we represent, just talking to ourselves. peak COP. And that may well be the case, 
for next year's hosts will certainly struggle to accommodate anywhere near as many participants. At the end of this year, the circus moves to Baku, capital of Azerbaijan, for COP29. And if you're planning on attending and you haven't already secured a hotel room, good luck. But let's get back on track here. Policy. COPs are a forum for attending parties or governments to assess efforts to address climate change and take decisions on ways to cut emissions and better adapt to the impacts of climate change. It's a vital opportunity to negotiate agreed solutions that take into account other countries' situations. After COP, country representatives return home and those negotiated solutions have to be acted on with policy changes at the national level. Solutions that take into account the situation not only in their national context, but their impact for other countries and the planet as a whole. COPs are one of the few tools available for working together across national boundaries, for developing inclusive climate policy that reflects the needs of all our planet's people, male and female no matter which country they are from or if they've been forced from their home countries altogether. There's a worrying link between climate change and populations that are forcibly displaced or even stateless. In 2022, 84% of refugees and asylum seekers were fleeing countries that are highly vulnerable to climate change, up from 61% in 2010. And while the link between the people being made refugees and climate change appears to be growing, solutions for helping those refugees return home seem to be narrowing. Only 1% of refugees returned home at all in 2020, according to UNHCR data. 1%. Perhaps more than any other group, refugees and stateless persons especially highly vulnerable groups like displaced women and girls, are particularly in need of representation in policymaking, and that includes having a voice at international events like COP. Joel Hange wants to smash the limitations faced by refugees and displaced persons and ensure that policymaking on climate issues is wholly inclusive. She's highly motivated and super well-informed. And with good reason. She's a refugee herself. Originally from DR Congo, Joelle was forced to flee her home to escape conflict at just 19 years old. She's completed her studies and launched her adult life in a refugee camp in Kenya. And she's determined that her refugee status should not deny her and millions like her across the globe a voice. I think... For so long, it has been the, the situation in displacement settings or camp settings. Refugees have been represented. And represented by who? That a big question. Represented by humanitarian actors. And unfortunately, the humanitarian actors who stand on behalf of refugees and, and advocate for refugees, they are, to some extent, people who don't know the reality of refugees. They, of course, they're just doing their job. They're just committing to what they're supposed to do within the organizations, but they really don't know the reality. And in this kind of gathering, like high-level gathering such as COP, I, I thought it, 
it's really important that people should really move beyond considering refugees as the recipient of aid, whereby they don't have to be involved into these gatherings. Of course, you can speak of what you know from data, what you know from your experience working in the sector, but you'll never speak on my behalf. I know my own experience. I know the reality. And probably I am well placed to speak on behalf of my fellow refugees because I've been in that situation. Compared to an outsider who is just coming and speaking or taking decisions. That's why I, I thought really, it's really important for people to start rethinking what are the, the inputs that they can get from displaced people themselves or refugees. Because being a refugee doesn't mean you, you don't have your brain, you don't have the ability to do things. You do have. It's only policy that limits you. So it's really important to move, to come up with a policy that is very in- inclusive and structured in a way that gives displaced people an opportunity not just to speak, not just to be part of these high-level conversations, but also to be part of the solution, be part of what is happening tangibly within their community. Joelle worked hard, overcoming very difficult odds to gain the platform she has today. Education, including online studies, were the key to her personal advancement. But that wasn't easy when living as a refugee, with unreliable access to electricity and only a smartphone to access the internet. It would seem that ensuring a more inclusive negotiation space is paying off, though. According to the latest assessments from the UNFCCC, 75% of all countries' nationally determined contributions and 97.5% of their national adaptation plans and 77.1% of adaptation communications include gender considerations. This is a significant uptick on just a few years ago. But bringing more women into the climate discussion is only a part of the battle. When it comes to climate change policy development, countries are negotiating responses to new data. Humankind has entered previously uncharted territory. The planet is warming and just how that will impact weather patterns, our food systems and the planetary functions that sustain life, our lives, is still being understood. Another key question to consider is who is writing the reports that provide the basis for the negotiations? Who is analysing the climate change data on which policymakers base their decisions. Lisa Shipper is Professor of Development Geography at the University of Bonn. If you follow the news, then you'll perhaps be aware of the UN reports that come out on a regular basis with the latest scientific findings on how climate change is impacting our planet. These IPCC reports, IPCC being Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, bring together our best understanding on climate change, our attempt to chart this uncharted territory and make informed policy-making choices. I'll hand over to Lisa now. So the IPCC is an intergovernmental panel that is composed of all the governments in the world, pretty much. And 
the governments decide that they want to have scientific assessments to support policy making on climate change. So these assessments are done by authors who are nominated by their country governments or organizations, and then a group of people makes an assessment, decides on who should be included, and the criteria that they take into account, of course, expertise, but then also gender and representation of global north and global south. Lisa is an IPCC report author. The authors are numerous and spread across the world, but not evenly or equitably. You may not be surprised to hear that there's an imbalance here too. Lisa again. As an author, you are not paid. So that already creates an issue because we know that it's more men who have permanent positions. And if you don't have a permanent academic position, that means that you're on money where you constantly have to run after research funding. So to get research funding, you need to write applications for proposals, grants, and that can take months of your year. So that already is where you see a gender difference coming in, right? So those who have permanent, stable positions, they can do something like IPCC because they have more time because they don't have to spend the time looking for research funding. Also, they probably advance faster in their careers if they're men because they haven't done a lot of care work because we still see women predominantly doing the care work. Because IPCC authors are volunteers, we basically are tasked to look at the climate science and climate science defined very broadly that is also social science includes things like relationship between sustainable development and climate change and so on and we're tasked to look at that and say what do we know what do we not know (laughs) where are the gaps but mainly like what can we say about how things are developing for example how can we connect the impacts in particular areas of the world of for example on water resources with other issues such as gender issues or poverty issues and so on and then when they get published they are basically public property <laughs> and so all of us who were in the six assessment report A lot of us did a lot of publicity afterwards to try to raise awareness of what was in the reports because they're huge things. But again, it's all for free. So again, you can start seeing who is involved and who isn't involved. So there are more men IPCC authors than women. And more of those authors come from the global north than the global south. Who's preparing the data is important, says Lisa as is moving away from treating climate change as only a technical problem that needs a technical solution. It's about bigger social questions. It's about development and equality. Much of the discourse that dominates when we talk about climate change suggests that climate change is some kind of technical issue. It's just a technical problem that also has technical solutions. It thereby skirts these really thorny issues around gender because they're really hard to deal with. And if we say, like I like to say, climate change is not about climate change per se, it's about development, then inevitably we have to get into these issues. Who's the most affected? Why? Why do we even have this situation where women, for example, are being exposed to sexual violence because there's no more water available and they have to walk really, really far to get water? That in itself should be enough for everybody to be up in arms and saying we have to address climate change, but we also have to address these issues, the fact that women and children, I mean girls, are so exposed and so vulnerable to 
all sorts of challenges. I think the point is that if we continue to take our knowledge from mainly men doing models on climate change, sitting in comfortable places in the global north, then we don't encounter these challenges that actually are what we really need to deal with and that solutions also have to include. I really enjoyed my discussions with Andrew, Joel and Lisa. Three very inspiring women making very compelling cases and doing their utmost to bring women's voices into climate policy at international events like COP and through their day-to-day research, work and lives. So while my discussions for this episode really underscored for me the importance of ensuring women and girls have access to education and are able to take leadership positions, topics of previous podcast episodes, it also threw open yet more questions that we're going to return to next time. Because throughout these discussions came a consistent sense of imbalance, an imbalance in who drives the debate, an imbalance in who gets to be heard, who writes the report, and ultimately who develops and implements the policy. Who in all of this has the power and is it fair? In our next episode of Women and Girls on the Climate Change Frontline, we'll be digging a bit deeper into this issue of fairness as we look at climate justice. If you want to join the discussion or suggest people for us to speak with, email capital.musings at uncdf.org. I'm Sarah Harris. Thank you for listening.